Hello, and welcome back to another episode of Hardcore Politics, a show where we explore political ideologies throughout history. I'm your host, Drew Harmon, and today we'll be exploring Karl Marx and Frederick Engels and their writing of the Communist Manifesto and basis of the political ideology of communism. Now, the Communist Manifesto isn't necessarily a strict Communist Party line. It's more just sort of outlining the ideas of communism. Now, um, Frederick Engels, one of the two authors of it, Engels is the one who later came back and translated it into all the languages, comes out and says from the beginning that uh, communism has been poorly represented in Europe and that a lot of the parties who claim they are socialist or communist really miss the point of it. And so this is more in the preface of the book and doesn't really get into any of their actual beliefs, yet forms a solid basis that this isn't one solid belief, it's more of a overarching political theory. Now, Marx begins this manifesto in almost an ironic and sort of funny way if you are yourself a communist reading this. Uh, he basically says that communism is looming over Europe and that all these people are starting to band together and it basically calls out the fear that it provokes in the ruling class. And now he does this mostly to sort of make it seem as though it's a powerful entity and get people behind it saying, look, you too can be a part of this big, powerful force looming over Europe that's causing leaders to call other leaders out in different nations and causing so much fear in the upper class and causing other governments to keep the communists down. Now, Marx being the political theorist that he is, spent a lot of time thinking about what it truly meant to be free in a society and argues from the beginning of the book that uh, you cannot truly be free if all of your production, all the things you produce, such as food and other goods, are going to one ruling class. Now, the first political system he actually calls out is feudalism. He points to feudalism and how the peasants would work their entire lives essentially as slaves and how everything that they produced would go to the ruling lords. He then points out how eventually these peasants banded together and overthrew the lords and formed the system that we know today called capitalism. Now, in capitalism, he says there are two different classes. There are the proletariats, aka the working class, who produce everything, the ones who are working in the assembly lines, the ones who are working in the factories, and the ones who are living wage to wage. And then there's a the bourgeoisie. Now, the bourgeoisie is defined as the class that controls the means of production, so the owners of the factory, the owners of these big corporations. Marx then goes on to argue that because everything comes down to money in this day and age, and because all the bourgeoisie really care about is the money, that they constantly abuse the proletariat, and that they constantly put them down, not paying them fair wages, or not giving them an appropriate amount that would account for what they actually produced. And he says this is unfair, and that really there is enough produced under the current system of capitalism for everyone to have more than they could ever desire. However, the bourgeoisie prevent this from happening merely to stay in their current lifestyle of absolute excess in wealth. Marx then goes on to claim that the class that holds all the power is not actually the bourgeoisie. Even though they control all of the means of production, the workers are still the ones who produce, and if needed, can produce what they need. And in addition to that, because there are so many people, say, working in one factory, for example, and only really one owner of the factory and their family, that the proletariat is also the more powerful class because of how much they vastly outnumber the bourgeoisie. 
He also claims that the bourgeoisie uh, likes to keep the proletariat fighting against each other for this exact reason, because they are scared that should the proletariats all band together, they'd easily be able to overthrow them and seize the means of production, essentially ending their reign and ending their wealth. In the next part of the manifesto, Marx takes some time to quell some concerns about communism and refute some objections to it, such as that uh, communism necessarily takes away all private property and belongings, when he points out that at least what he advocates and at least what he puts in this manifesto only advocates for the seizing of bourgeoisie property, so that the bourgeoisie would lose all their property and then the proletariats would seize all the means of production. By doing this, he claims that people will still have their own personal belongings, such as their own clothes, their own food, their own house, but the things that produce clothes, foods, and houses, the entities that produce these things will now be owned by all the proletariats in a communal way of living. Marx closes off this manifesto by stating that while this is sort of the broad beliefs of communism, this does not exactly align with all communist parties, and so don't expect it to. Don't expect if you're able to refute this manifesto that you'll be able to refute communism as a whole. And he makes it clear that, uh, communists across the nation will go through their own ways of achieving this new form of economics, this new political ideology. And he also uh, really ends strong with all caps, working men of all countries unite, which is him calling for a forcible overthrow of the current bourgeoisie class and a new communist system to be instated with the proletariats owning all the means of production. And now that we've covered the basic uh, sort of ideas of communism, I think it'd be wise to talk about some of the writing elements that Marx and Engels in his later translations and revisions of this text use to sort of sway people to their side and to make it a more powerful message. Now, a literary element that is worth mentioning is setting. Setting plays a big role because Karl Marx goes back to the time of primeval man, where they all worked together in a society and were all equals, and all the production went towards the goal of surviving. One person's berries that they foraged were another person's berries to survive off of two. One man's skin that they cured was another man's robe as well. And then he uses the setting of the medieval era to contrast with this. The medieval era contrasts as there are now the feudal overlords who control the peasants, where not everybody works together. Uh, there's actually more things produced, but they all go to the same person instead of being split along evenly, and this results in an unequal society. But perhaps the most important setting he uses is the setting of the era that it was written in, the setting of the Industrial Revolution, where these bourgeoisie people, these factory owners, these businessmen were taking advantage of their workers in extremely harsh working conditions and extremely low wages. So he really takes this sort of unhappiness that all these workers, all these proletariats would have been feeling and uses it to his advantage and using the setting of current day. Another very important literary element of this work is conflict. Now he uses actually a little bit of both uh, internal and external conflict. There's the internal conflict of the feelings of the workers, of the proletariat, of how they feel exploited and how they wish for something else. In addition to the external conflict, the one that he makes very clear needs to happen someday and has happened throughout history, the external conflict of the proletariat always constantly uprising, 
only to overthrow the bourgeoisie and only for a new bourgeoisie to form, a cycle that he wishes to end. So by using conflict, he points out the cyclical nature of history and how there's always been class conflict and how he believes he finally has a solution for it to end. And lastly, the third literary element that I'm going to mention, there are many more, but because of time, I can only really fit in three, is mood. Now, the mood is sort of an urgent mood. He's basically stressing that this needs to happen soon. This uprising needs to happen soon. Things cannot go on as they are. The worker cannot keep getting exploited. And that soon, very soon, they need to rise up. So that mood, that uh, writing style of sort of urgency, really brings more to the work as a whole. It makes it feel more important. Well, unfortunately, that's all our time for today. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope to see you all next week on the new episode of Hardcore Politics. Once again, I'm your host, Drew Harmon, and you all have a wonderful evening. None of this would have been possible without the support of Patreon. So if you like this and other podcasts similar to this, please make sure to go support me on my page to make sure hardcore politics has a long-running life, just like the political ideologies that we examine. Once again, thank you for your time, and have a wonderful evening.